episode 21 of Etc. Etc. with young Southpaw. That's moi. Me if you ain't got your French tongue on. 21, man. Woo! I mean, Scott Walker asked on Farmer in the City, you know, do I hear 21, 21, 21, etc. You know, well, I mean, you're going to hear it right now. So Metallica's Master of Puppets album, you know? I mean, I started thinking. I mean, it's a logical question. Who are they talking about? Who is this Master of Puppets? Jim Henson? Frank Oz? Some sort of other wizard? Merlin? I mean, on the cover, you know, you don't, you don't see anybody. It's just strings attached to almost invisible hands up in the sky. I mean, the invisible hand of economics, you know? Adam Smith, Robert Smith. I mean, The Cure and Metallica sure have sold a lot of records. Hands in the air, wave them like you don't care. But I mean, you gotta care to achieve that level of mastery and puppetry, you know? Same for anything, really. It's weird, though, you know? Because Cameo's Word Up also came out in 1986. Same year as that Metallica album. I mean, how amazing would that have been if Cameo did an actual cameo on Master of Puppets? Funk it up, you know? Then there was that whole Genesis video, you know, Land of Confusion with the Reagans and the members of the band all as puppets. I mean, whoa! Came out in 86 too. Crazy. On the Invisible Touch album too. I mean, Invisible Touch, that's just like the hands in the sky controlling the puppet strings. I mean, were Genesis and Metallica in cahoots? I mean, for what, I do not know. Or even dare to tread, you know? I mean, is this what Into Deep was about? And like, I mean, if anything, if Genesis are going to pick a thrash band to secretly work with, it'd have to be Exodus. But like they had I Can't Dance off that album, We Can't Dance. And Exodus had the Toxic Waltz. So maybe that's where it all fell through, you know? But then, like, that off that album, you know, 1991, mind you, they had Dreaming While You Sleep. And also in 91, Metallica's Enter Sandman! I mean, I can't make this stuff up. Coming together again five years later like that, a not... Ten years after, that was a different band. But but two years before, Master of Puppets, you know? Depeche Mode only put out Master and Servant. 
And then two years after Enter Sandman, Nirvana puts out Serve the Servants. I mean, this is boggling my mind, you know, just mixing it all right up, you know, all my gray matter. I mean, again, was Metallica considering an all-remix album of that Depeche Mode tune? And then we get, like, Battery and Damage Incorporated? Or maybe they just decided it was the thing that should not be. If y'all want to hear the rest of this story, head on over to youngsouthpaw.com. It's episode 44 of the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast, entitled, get this, Master of Puppets. I mean, I won't spoil it for you, but the idea actually came to me from one of the many topics this week's guest and I discussed on this podcast. That would be Mr. John Higgs. It was a pleasure to talk to him. I've been a fan of his work since his book on the KLF came out back in 2013. Chaos, Magic, and the Band Who Burned a Million Pounds. Combines a bunch of things I find really fascinating. Robert Anton Wilson, Bill Drummond, pop music in general. And I just read his Stranger Than We Can Imagine in Alternative History of the 20th Century. Woo! It was excellent. I highly recommend it. I really dig his investigations into all these disparate things and finding a compelling narrative thread, easy to grasp out of the chaos, you know, and just filled with fascinating little-known ideas and facts. So let's get to it. All right. We're here today with Mr. John Higgs. How are you doing today, John? Uh, I'm pretty well today. Thank you. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. I've been thinking a lot lately about how, like, we get into things, you know, our first impressions. Like, the first time I ever heard about Crowley was through the Ozzy Osbourne song, Uh Mr. Crowley. And he, like, his accent, like, I even think he says more Crowley. I mean, you know the rhyme, you know. Sure. Uh, My enemies, you know, wish to treat me foully, say Crowley. And, like, I mean, you know, I was young, but like, you know, I was living in, you know, suburban Connecticut, you know, and I was a teenager and like, this was all I had heard of it for years, had no real appeal. Mm. But then like, it wasn't until I read Illuminatus that I realized, you know, these things don't have to be so dark, you know, you could really get into them in you know, many different ways. But sure. I was wondering how you got into all this stuff, like Crowley and Robert Anton Wilson, you know. Yeah, through Robert Anton Wilson. Well, I think uh, ground zero for me was a guy called Brian Barrett, who was uh, an old English beat poet who uh, was very close to Timothy Leary when Leary had escaped from jail and was on the run in Algiers with the Black Panthers and around Switzerland. And if you know the whole story of, you know, okay. Timothy Leary's wild sort of life, uh, he, he was part of that. And I'd say I got to know him towards the end of his life, uh, he was living in South London. And he'd just, you know, tell all these stories and you just think, my God, this is amazing. Why is, why is, uh, you know, why are there no books about this? Because at the time, um, it, all that had sort of seemed to have gone quiet. People weren't, didn't seem to be really sort of talking about it. When you heard, um, uh, or if Leary came up, it would sort of, the context would be wrong or it was, it was just, it was just, it felt like the stories were being lost and people were starting to die off. I think Rosemary Leary died off. And um, I was just, 
so convinced that someone needed to write a book about Timothy Leary that it took me a few years to realise that, oh, yeah, that's me, isn't it? That's, you? That's, that's fallen to me, that one. I, sh- I need to do that. Uh, and so when it was, it was through Brian getting into Tim that sort of introduced me to Robert Anton Wilson and, and then on to Crowley and all that, that sort of, sort of rich seam that sort of, uh, you know, gushes through the 20th century. You could probably say that about all your books, that it came down to you <laughs> to be the one to write. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. It's, it's some of the harder ones. I'm just thinking, why isn't someone, if someone else would have done that, it would send me an awful lot of effort. <laughs> um, now, how, how I came to know of you, and I, I imagine this was probably true for most, well, at least most people I know, was through your KLF book. Oh, sure, yeah. Talks about Robert Anton Wilson quite a bit. And I imagine that probably turned people onto Illuminatus for the first time as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I never recommend people read Illuminatus. It is very much a sort of a period piece. Um, it's, I mean, there's a lot in it that's dated. You get the sense that it's written, you know, by two employees of Playboy in the years before the second wave of feminism. Quite clearly, that, that sort of comes across. Um, but it is a very important book and it is a very powerful book and it has had a sort of strange reality warping impact on a lot of people at a lot of, a lot of points. Yeah. I mean, I always recommend people read Robert Anton Wilson and I always sort of say, you know, try cosmic trigger first. That's, that's the sort of, but at some point people always want to go back to Illuminatus. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's huge. It's it's a spe- it seems especially sort of relevant now. A lot of um, Bob's stuff, uh, he talks about a place he calls Chapel Perilous. Chapel Perilous is the, is the place where basically all your maps have run out and you're lost and you don't understand what's going on around you and you don't know the way forward. Uh, and it's very much like now for a lot of people with living in, in Chapel Perilous. Um, yeah. And that's what makes him so useful because he talks about the way he found his way out of this this sort of state um he says there's only really two ways out of uh, chapel perilous one is agnosticism and the other is paranoia and if you if you go down the paranoid route you stay there and you're sort of trapped and you're stuck in chapel perilous forever but if you accept that you know it's okay that you don't know everything and, and you, you don't have to be certain. And you don't have to be the guy who's right all along. And if you can just humble yourself a little, then you can just slide out of, out of that, um, which is probably about the most useful advice anyone can give at this particular point. Uh, now we have social media and then we have, you know, all the... Uh, uh, all the sort of the wars of the certain, you know, in the online sort of uh, debates, or for want of a better word, people just can have to be correct and have this psychological sort of need to be correct and have their viewpoint sort of confirmed. And you just drop all that and you just let that all just slide away. You know, that's the only way out of this. When I, when I was talking to Andrew Shaw a couple episodes back, he was talking about the yogic practice of uh, just not being right, of purposefully being wrong. And that sure. seemed a really wonderful thing. I mean, it seems very difficult because we're so attached to being right. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, 
I mean, we could try and, and be as right as we can. You know, I'm not saying, hey, just be wrong all the time. You know, it's, it's, I, th- I think the, the aim is, 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 is not to be always right. The aim is to be sort of less wrong. If you can try and be less wrong, that's a good enough sort of, you know, uh, path to sort of, to sort of go on. Be, being wrong all the time is, is probably not going to work out too well. <laughs> <laughs> but as an exercise of non-attachment to uh, your own views. Yes, absolutely. And what, I fi- what I'm finding is, I know a lot of uh, Discordians over here in the UK, um, and even though there's so much sort of conspiracy stuff around now, there's so much, you know, the, the 5G stuff, the anti-vaxxers, the QAnon, there's all these sort of things which a lot of people are sort of being sucked into. None of the Discordians I know are. I mean, they may be uh, interested in it. You know, they may be knowledgeable about it, but they're not going to believe it. You know, they've been, been sort of cured by reading Robert Anton Wilson of the, of the, uh, of, of the, of the need to, to, to believe in someone else's, you know, BS, someone else's belief system. And it's, nice. it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because a lot of the sort of new age people, the yogi sort of people there, you can just see them slowly falling into say the 5g sort of world or the, the anti-vaxxer sort of, sort of world. But uh, those that have read Robert Anton Wilson do seem to have been inoculated against it. Mm. You, you mentioned paranoia earlier. There, there's that pension quote uh, from gravity's rainbow that uh, paranoia is just, the onset of realizing that everything is connected, which always, I mean, I'm used to seeing coincidences <laughs> everywhere, but then, you know, yeah. you start to think, yikes, when is it too much? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's, there's many ways to react to the realization that everything is connected. Definitely. Uh, fear is, is a good start. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, guardian gave you a great review for the KLF book, which, uh, what was it? Uh, Adam Curtis brainstorming with Thomas Pynch. Are you a Pynch fan? Oh, I need to read more. Um, but yeah, what, what I know is definitely, you know, that was, I was very, very proud of that quote. I have to say that was, that was a, a, a very lovely thing to read. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do need to read more Pynch. I've got some, I've got some up there. Uh, unfortunately I've been um, almost reading nothing but books about 18th century stuff for the past you know, eight months or so. I'm sort of deep in a book on William Blake. Um, so reading for pleasure, uh, just reading stuff for the hell of it has taken a back seat to, uh, my God, I've got to understand this really arcane and, uh, you know, a small part of the 18th century world that I've never had no interest or connection with before. When you say deep into a book on William Blake. Yes. You've just written a book on William Blake. I, I wrote a small book on William Blake okay. that came out uh, last year, but there's a big book on William Blake that's coming out next year. I say a big book, a normal size book that, that, that's coming out next year. Okay. There was a little, there was a little teaser taster sort of thing, um, because there was a lot of William Blake stuff going on in Britain last year. There was a there was a massive uh, retrospective exhibition at the at Tate Britain. Um, it was just a once in a lifetime sort of chance to see all that incredible work all together. And, you know, uh, and it came out for that and I gave a little talk at Take Britain and it was, you know, it was a really interesting time. It was, this was the before times when we used to go to art galleries and things, you know, yeah. but yeah, no, a big book on William Blake is, is on its way. Excellent. I look forward to it. Um, I think 
when the Manic Street Preachers first came out, I remember this so vividly. I was reading about them, you know, all the import magazines we get over here. And I was going to my friend John and I were on the way to the record store to buy. It was probably, yeah, it must have been Generation Terrace. Uh-huh. I mentioned the name Manic Street Preachers to John. And he said, what, like William Blake? And, oh, uh, interesting. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. I mean, how do you think the Manics would have been different if Blake was actually in the band? Well, I think Blake influenced the band. I think they were, didn't they quote him a, a few times? His presence it feels to me like it fit. I mean, they had a lot of influences, yeah. a lot of sort Lots of, of influences and, and stuff like that. But I feel fairly sure that, that Blake was part of it and sort of Blake was with them and their, uh, their sort of sheer belief in the importance of, of the, what they were doing and what they were sort of creating fits very well with sort of a, a, a Blakean worldview. You know, I, I feel that he was with them. Nice. I asked uh, Mikey George in that question this winter and he, he mm-hmm. sort of sees Blake as like an Eno sort of figure. So oh, okay. All, all that sort of uh, spaciness to them, like like early Roxy music, which would have been interesting <laughs> to hear. <laughs> I mean, if, when time travel is invented, I think this is one of the things I would like to uh, have. Happen. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose he had a good voice, did Blake. You know, uh, he wasn't trained musically, but he had a good voice, and a lot of the early stuff he was writing were very clearly supposed to be songs, songs rather than yeah. poems. You know, so he would he would have. Uh, that sort of the, the whole social uh, London thing of coming together and having a drink and having a sing, you know, he he loved all that sort of stuff. He, he loved to see kids playing, kids singing, and that, that sort of that, that celebration of life um, that you sometimes miss because of the sort of dark, brooding sort of you know tone of a, a lot of his sort of later works, particularly. Um, you sort of forget he was just a bit of a pussycat and a, and a, and a, and a you know, a joyful, fun lad. <laughs> Are you familiar with the band, the Blake Babies? No, I'm not. They were an early 90s uh, American indie rock band. Juliana Hatfield went solo. Oh, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> apparently they asked Allen Ginsberg what they, they called him up and asked him what they should name their band. And he said, yes, the Blake Babies. Uh-huh. Rather excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. 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 He, he was so deeply changed by Blake was, was Ginsburg. Yeah. I'm surprised he didn't suggest the daughters of Albion. Is that name still going? It's still available. You know, for any female led band, it's highly influenced by Blake uh, and visions of the daughters of Albion. It's there for the taking. I would like to hear that. We should make that happen. (laughs) (laughs) Before we leave, uh, Mr. Robert Anton Wilson, you met him. Uh, oh, I did. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about just that. The, just it was just the once. It was when I was um, writing this book on Timothy Leary, uh, and so I went around to see. And he was very old and he was very frail, but he was clearly Robert Anton Wilson. Just that that twinkle in the eye and that sort of sense of um, being the smartest person in the room, but it's okay. It is a it's a hard thing to sort of to sort of pull off, and when I I mean it, the Leary book was the first thing I'd ever written, and I felt very much like a fraud, right? Whereas I was doing it, uh, I was going around saying, "Yes, I'm writing this book on Timothy Leary. Can I can I speak to you?" And I had you know, no idea if I could pull it off or you know to do a good job or anything like that. And when I had the opportunity to go see Bob, I just thought, "Oh, he's just going to see right through me." 
he's going to see that I'm just totally winging this and I've got no idea what I'm doing. And, I, you know, and it's a, to it's a total blag. He's going to see that. And I went in and I spoke to him and he totally saw it and he was just fine with it. It just, it wasn't at all bothered in any way, shape or form. He just totally got me and it was great. And it was just, just such, it just left such a, um, an impact on me that, that one time. He seems like the nicest guy. There's so, it's so hard to find anyone with a bad word to say uh, against him, which is, I think, as clear a recommendation as you can get that you know his philosophy is worth following yeah you know there are some people who proclaim how we should all be and they're just assholes <laughs> most of them probably yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah do you know anything about this story uh that ian fleming asked uh like crowley and Dion fortune a bunch of those type of cats uh, uh -huh. to get involved in the battle in World War II on the astral plane? Oh, well, um, I didn't know that Fleming asked them. It might not have he, been him, but I think he was, the story he, I heard he was involved. He was sort of the personal assistant to the uh, head of naval intelligence. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of, it's, we, we, we could, we can get away with it. <laughs> we can we can sort of <laughs> sort of sort of swing it. It was very much a sort of a desk job. There is um, in Casino Royale uh, the uh, villain, the chief. Hmm. Uh, uh, if you know Casino Royale, it's very close to the plot of the Daniel Craig film. He he has to yeah. beat him at cards. He beats him at cards. So the chief kidnaps him and uh, tortures his testicles. It's a lot of testicle torture uh, in in that particular book. Yeah. And um, the character doing the chief, uh, as it's been said, was modelled on Crowley, in in his sort of round head and stuff like that. Oh. Uh, so it's it's you sort of imagine that's Crowley uh, going at James Bond's genitals with a carpet beater and a knife or whatever he was particularly using. So that brings things in a whole new light. Does doesn't it? <laughs> it does. You have to stop and think about that, don't you? Yeah. I don't know if I want to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, reading it was brutal. Watching it was brutal. It's just, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I mean, uh, there was um, there was certainly uh, a magical front in World War Two uh, in this country, and I'm sure in many other countries. Um, and there was, I think, it was Dion Fortune and her lot would project this cone of power um, at Hitler in his in berlin uh telling him he could never invade britain they would never get across the channel and 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 all this uh and i was reading in my 20th century book i was writing about um v2 rockets and Werner braun and um mm. and all those things and i was i was surprised to see that um uh the reason hitler um didn't go with things like the v2 rockets earlier was because he had a dream that he could never in, uh, invade Britain with, with rockets. It would just never, never work. So he just dismissed it all. And it was only when Von Braun had been able to prove that this thing would work that he went, oh, okay, we shall put a load of resources into that, even though it was too late. It was too close to the end of the war. So it didn't... It didn't if he had done that a year or so earlier, things could have been very different. Um, 
and that just, I was just sort of surprised by how close uh, in this military history book, this description of Hitler having this dream that he can never invade Britain and therefore not trying to get these rockets going, matched the descriptions of how Dion Fortune's lots were projecting this cone of power out at him in his bed when he was asleep, telling him he would never sort of be able to sort of invade Britain. Wow. wow. Yeah, it's quite good. That I, I, I've yet to do anything with that. But I filed that away at some point. <laughs> yeah. That's going to be useful. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a big tradition of I mean, um, uh, if you know the story of the Spanish Armada in the in Tudor times, Spain was about to uh, send this huge armada to invade Britain, and all the tides turned and the storms came and they sank and they failed and they, it, it never sort of happened. And there's a lot of magical tradition that all the witches of Britain were turning the <laughs> turning the tides and turning the storms and uh, and and things like that. Uh-huh. You probably wouldn't want to rely just on the witches of Britain, though. No, but if you had them yeah. in bond, like I was thinking, like I mean, as a fallback, it's best to have them there. But yeah. I wouldn't rely just on them. Because <laughs> I was, I was thinking, you know, has there ever been like a supernatural Bond film or story? And there really hasn't. Well, there's Live and Let Die. That's uh, true. Yeah, it had, it had a lot of sort of voodoo yeah. aspects in, in it, and um, I think I get the impression Fleming uh, was a little bit swayed by that. Was a little bit taken by the sort of was the supernatural. Um, but I think I think it's only Live and Let Die that it really sort of comes. I, into I remember. I mean, there were maybe a little hints here and there, but definitely nothing evolved plot-wise or anything. Yeah, yeah. Because I was I was thinking like. I mean, who would do the theme song to the film? It's a supernatural bond. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, I, would, I would hope it wouldn't be the Ozzy Osbourne song, Mr. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I assume you know the story that um, he was, was he in a rehearsal room? Ozzy was in a rehearsal room and there's this photo of this, this sort of round-faced fella on the wall. And he was like, who the fuck's that twat? Pardon my language, this is, how Ozzy Osbourne was supposed to say, to which his guitarist just burst out laughing, and Ozzy couldn't work out what was so funny, uh, and he was going, "That's Ozzy Osbourne. That's why that's um, Alistair Crowley. That's who you've been singing about for decades. You not know who it is." And he was just like, "Oh no, it was just a name. It's just a spooky name." <laughs> I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, it's not, it's, it's not a details man. Is Ozzy? <laughs> yeah. I was thinking. George Clinton might be good. He's never done a Bond theme in the oh, 70s. Yes, so that would be fantastic. That yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because he's uh, he's still going strong, isn't he? Yeah, I saw uh, P Funk a couple of years back. They were fantastic. Yeah, I, 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 I saw them at a festival that I was talking at. Um, and they were, A, they were amazing. But he was just, a lot of the time, he'd just go and sit down at the back <laughs> of the stage. Yeah. He'd just sit down and have a bit of a rest. And then he'd just sort of get up and he just got up and started humping this chair at the front of the stage. And then he'd just sit down and have a bit of a rest. And then he'd get up and it was just extraordinary. Yeah, we need, we need a Bond film, a supernatural Bond film with uh, you know, Parliament or, or similar um, doing the theme tune. Which brings me to your uh, band biography of T.C. Lethbridge, which is called Standing on the Verge Getting It On. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. That's the reference. Tell me about that. That was um, that was a little book I wrote about five years ago um, about a friend's band. 
who had taken over 20 years to get a record together. And it was about how, like, an artistic um, project can affect people uh, and about the impact it can have on your life and about the impact of not finishing you know, an artistic project. There's a, there's a lot of, in magical thought, there's, a, you know, there's the importance of closing the ceremony and the importance of finishing and, and dispelling energies is, is, is a big part of that. Uh, uh, and if we go with Alan Moore, that art is magic, and use the words interchangeably, just the same for, um, for a, a musical project. Um, and it was just, I knew their stories. Uh, I knew it was just a fascinating, uh, strange supernatural time in their lives. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of sort of weird experiences they have with at, uh, sort of ancient sites uh, around Wiltshire, uh, that sort of figured into it. Um, and they finally sort of came together and rebuilt friendships and, um, and were about to play their first ever gig, which was at the uh, Cosmic Trigger uh, Festival in Liverpool. Speaking of Robert Anton Wilson, they were, they were, they were sort of come on that. So I wrote their story um, for that event really so it would be sort of available there and it's marketed that, that that sort of event i'm pretty sure it's the uh, it's the first time a, a band has had a biography written about them before they've even played their first gig i feel that must, that must be true it must be true um yeah but it's just it's just a small band i just put out 111 of those and another 111 came out recently for other other sort of reasons but it's possibly one of my favorite things i've done Oh. That little book. It's, Why the one eleven? It's for Brian Barrett, who I mentioned earlier. Ah, okay. He yeah. was it, that was his number in the way that Robert Anton Wilson has the whole twenty three thing. Hmm. Uh, Brian Barrett had the, the one hundred and eleven, so it's it's in memory of him, really. Excellent. Do you make music yourself? No. Okay. <laughs> no, it's about it's about the one thing I've never um, done. You know, I've. I've um, you know, I've, I've done animation, I've, I've directed TV, I've, I've, I've done all sorts of creative things, but not music. Because to me, it's just, I just don't, I just can't, I don't know how it's done. So it remains, has this magical sort of aura about it. So in the way that sort of filmmaking, I kind of understand the, the, the nuts and bolts and writing, I understand how it sort of works. I don't understand the music. And I kind of like that. You know, I don't yeah. really want to understand it. All I know is the impact it has and the effect it has on me. But I've got no idea how it's doing that or why or what they're doing or, or anything like that. I like to, I like music to be this um, mystery. Mm. Art is magic. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Now, this importance of completing things, you seem to be just cranking stuff out pretty regularly. Do you have any? Yeah. Well, I mean, I love doing what I do. So it's, it's um it seems obvious that you you keep doing it you know I, one 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 of the things i quite like about writing um is that people go oh, you've got a, what another book i haven't read the last book why why have you written another book you know it's, uh and you don't get that in any other um field of work you know a dentist doesn't get people going but you've, you've fixed that guy's filling this morning why are you doing someone else's teeth this afternoon it's just yeah, it's it's so it's a sort of reminder that in a lot of people's eyes it is kind of a special thing. You know, it's not it's not it's not like 
a job of work, as as you normally say. It's a, it's a, it's a privilege. It's a sort of a sort of honour. People view it slightly differently. Um, but I basically love doing it, so I just keep doing it. Um, and also, you know, it's not the easiest thing to make a living doing, so you have to work hard. Do you have any projects you've that are still looming after twenty years, or do you make sure to <laughs> get those down? Um, I have uh, a few at the back of my head waiting patiently there's usually about five books going it brewing and when you finish a project at that point one of them just goes right it's me next and steps forward and you're oh, okay it's you next is it and so you focus on that uh and the others keep sort of cooking and then another one will sort of pop into the group and so there's always always a few sort of you know bouncing around there there's a there's a few that have been waiting too long and i, I really need to get to them uh, it's a novel that's I really should have finished by now, but it's the the nonfiction stuff uh, is keeps taking off on its own, and so I'm sort of you know drawn along by that. Um, the thing about writing though is it's hard to know when you're done, or do you not find that? Yes, um, I know you sort of know when you're done, but it can it can you're never quite sure when that point's going to be. I mean you uh, you you can have to write many, many drafts to get something how it's supposed to be. Uh, like I think my book on the 20th century, that was five drafts. And, you know, the first three were just awful. And the whole story of it just wasn't there. And then the story sort of finally crystallized in the fourth draft. And then I could do a fifth draft that made it look like that was the plan all along. And it was, you know, all sort of meant to be like that. And look, so all the hard stuff could just look very casual and stuff like that. So you don't really know how much work something needs, but you know when it's done, and you sort of know when you're um, when it's right. It, 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 you just—it's an odd thing. It's—I think sculptors talk a lot about it. They just know that's it. I mustn't touch that anymore. That's that's done. I, I can. I have to leave it. I think Crowley's been so much on my mind because of your 20th century book, like you know. Do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. Hmm. You know, I've known that phrase forever and it has you know specific meanings, but then in the context you placed it in of the child of the 20th right. century, that that really hit home about well, basically everything that's going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do very much associate him with the, the 20th century, and I think other things that are going on now. But his presence is always, I mean, literally at my front window if i look down the street i can see across brighton where i live and i can see the uh where his body was cremated i can see the church just just this literally out out sort of there so it's always a little little bit of a presence around here is crowley he used to live uh, he died in a place called hastings which is down the coast all oh, right but yeah. they um his funeral was was as i say in this church i can see um and it was there was a big press scandal about how it was a black mass in this church and, and things like that. Oh. And I think there was a, a newspaper headline, um, World's Worst Man Dies. <laughs> they got, they, he used to like the world's most wickedest man, but they got it wrong. And it was just World's Worst Man. <laughs> I remember reading uh, Gurdjieff's comment about him was uh, he, he seemed just very filthy. When he visited Gurdjieff, uh, <laughs> whatever it was. Yeah, I mean, for a man who you know raised the importance of the will and stressed how the will was, you know, uh, 
he uh, the power of his will and all this sort of thing to sort of end up sort of a junkie mm. you know is very damning yeah. very very damning yeah. i don't know why i keep bringing him up i have other questions yeah for yeah, him. You know, yeah no <laughs> you're fond you're fond of old alistair there it's that damn ozzy osborne song yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm really looking forward to reading Watling Street. I, I love the podcast. Oh, thank you. I don't know if you covered this in the book or not. Mm. I wanted to ask you, how does Wadi from the Exploited play into him? <laughs> Sad, sadly, he doesn't. Sadly, there's no chapter on the Exploited in that. But you have to draw a line somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure I'm sure I could have somehow linked him into Watling Street. You can link anything into into Watling Street. It's it goes through all of time. It's connected to everything. Um, but I fear, yeah, the exploited, I, I, I've left off, unfortunately. That's, <laughs> I'm sure that's fine. I'm sure. <laughs> You're working on you you're, 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 you're just not going to buy a book copy now. Are you? Given, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, not, well. that's just, that's just sounds awful. <laughs> how does, how do the Avengers figure into your, uh, work and the Avengers at C to Mrs. Peel. Ah, right. Okay. Um, yeah. How do they sort of fit in? That's a good question. They were, um, they were such an influential sort of thing. If you look at early, you know, Doctor Who and, um, uh, British TV and, and that just sort of sense of breaking out of the normal world and that, that fiction could just have a bit of a sparkle about it. Uh, you know, a, a bit, a bit of wonderment and excitement um, in a sort of fairly standard spy sort of sort of setup. Uh, but the name's been stolen now. You can you couldn't really bring them back. Some you can't go. You'd have to come up with a new name for them, and people would still think it was supposed to be superheroes. And I don't like that. I have to clarify. You know. Yeah, I mean, are they known in America? The Avengers. Yeah, they are. I don't, know, I don't know how widely, but I'm. Yeah, they are known. I mean, there was yeah. a film in the late '90s with Sean Connery that was sort of. Oh yeah, yeah. and was it Ralph Fiennes and? Oh yeah. And, uh, was it? I forget who it was now. But um, I, I'm yeah, sure. Sorry, it didn't didn't have Sean Connery dressed as a teddy bear. Which was a um. Yeah. A Mrs. Gale episode, like one of the early ones. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh huh. But I, yeah, I, very Avengers. I think it was on BBC America because I remember. I think I bought the box set through BBC America. Oh, I was just okay. you know, fascinated by it. Yeah, I haven't seen I haven't seen Avengers for ages. But they, they, I mean, I just started watching Quatermass in the Pit. I don't know if you know um, quite the Quatermass. Yeah. This is going back into old sort of British TV, and they were Hammer films um, as well, sort of pre sort of Doctor Who, um, but would have so many sort of new sci-fi ideas in them that people have just been ripping them off for, for decades, you know, ever, ever since. I, I always, I'm always amazed by that, that, so that 10 year period of HG Wells, where he basically came up with every plot, every <laughs> sci-fi. So aliens come and invade from space. No one's come up with that before. Right. Done it. You know, a man builds a time travel machine. No one's come up with that before. Right. Done that. Uh, you know, Invisible Man, and all these, all these sort of things. In that one ten-year period, he just came up with these 
just inspired idea after inspired idea after inspired. And we're still just going, oh, we'll just rip that off and copy that and use that again and again and again because they're so sort of sort sort of rich. I was coming to the UK in March and April. I had some shows lined up I was going to do. Mm-hmm. Of course, that didn't happen. But I had tickets uh-huh. to your play, H.G. Wells and the Spiders from Mars. Which didn't happen. Which okay. also didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell me about it. Since ba- basically, started. nothing's happened. Oh, well, yeah, that's a real shame. I was really looking forward to um, uh, that. Uh, it was. I wrote it for this actor called Oliver Senton, uh, who played... Robert Anton Wilson, just to sort of tie everything up in, in Cosmic Trigger. And uh, I think he reads the audio books and, and mm. things like that. And he also looked a lot, I realised, like H.G. Wells, which <laughs> was what sort of set me off. And I, I came up with this, uh, with this play for him, H.G. Uh, Wells and the Spiders from Mars, which sort of took the idea of what if the, the, the spirit of uh, sort of that trans... trans transgressive, creative sort of spirit of Ziggy Stardust. What if that fell to earth, but 70 years too early and got the wrong boy uh, genius from Bromley? You know, Wells and Bowie were both that from, sounds from, fantastic from Bromley. And both had this 10-year this, this period where they were just, everything they did was just new and original and brilliant and they were just utterly inspired. Uh, and I'm just, I'm always fascinated by that level of creativity in people just that just the constant outpouring of new and brilliant and new and brilliant yeah. um and wells had it and of course bowie had it and so so um yeah so hg wells and the spiders from mars is you know it's i say one man play it's a one visible man play there's another entity who could be the invisible man or he you know he could be uh entirely wells's imagination or he could be the spirit of ziggy stardust that's fallen to earth 70 years too early it's, it's you know a bit play it sort of play it sort of plays around uh, uh with with that yeah it was great i don't mm-hmm. had songs in it it was you know i was proud of it it was it was all right and it's uh it's gone the way of all things in the pandemic unfortunately uh, original songs yeah that that seemed to be the um the best way to honor you know, David Bowie uh, would be just to write a whole bunch of new original songs rather yeah. than sort of try and get permission to use, which I'm sure we couldn't have done or couldn't yeah. afford to do or anything <laughs> like that. So, so you know, needs must, but you know, that just definitely, that definitely sort of felt right. Is it going to, when things can happen again, are you going to bring it back? I'm just sounds. I don't know. I mean, I hope so. I absolutely hope so. I mean, there's been some talk about maybe it could be an audio thing, um but there's no definite plans that for anything <laughs> anywhere yeah, yeah. uh when when it could be put on i'd sincerely hope it is put on again one of my recent southpaw stories was that i mean you talked about bowie's 10-year run mm. but in the mid 80s well 1985 mm. to be exact it's it's sad to bring up but david lee roth left van halen he did. He and did. I, I conjectured, what if Bowie had replaced him? You're not a Sammy Hagar man, is what I'm getting from this. It's not that I don't like Sammy Hagar, <laughs> <laughs> but that was Van Hagar. The uh, you know Van yeah. Allen were those first six albums. Okay. okay. I started thinking like you would have you know two of the most innovative musicians of the 20s. Like if, if that version of Van Halen was sort of like Bowie's Tin Machine. Yeah, so I'm, I'm picturing Tin Machine with Eddie Van Halen on guitar. Um, 
nothing against Reeves Gabrels, but you know, it would have been uh, well, it would have been <laughs> mind blowing, you know. <laughs> yeah, I can't see uh, Bowie sort of leaping off the drum riser to quite the same level. <laughs> David Lee Roth would happily have done. Um, wow, that is that is a that is a clash in my head. That that is a clash, clash of creative spirits. I can't can't get my head around that at all. Well, I'm glad to, uh, to put that in here. <laughs> now I I hesitate to ask after the whole exploited non-starter. Yeah. Thoughts, okay. Your thoughts on Van Halen? Um. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm more of a maiden person. Haven't quite got the depth of Van Halen knowledge that you would hope I had. I apologize. Um, no, no, it's, it's a cultural it's thing. It's a very American I don't thing. know much about this either. So. <laughs> uh, but maiden. Let's talk to maiden. That, that was my level. Yeah, I can talk Iron Maiden. Who's your favorite Eddie? Oh, Oh, that's a very good question. It has to be a Derek Riggs, Eddie, obviously. Oh, yeah. Those those early uh, covers were just entire worlds. Right? They were a story in each sort of in each sort of you know image. Yeah. It was a it was a level of sort of composition that was just brilliant. Um, sadly, that all fell away when Derek Riggs fell out with uh, the band or whatever happened. Uh, but it's probably the somewhere in time. Yeah, Eddie that's is is the one. That was I probably my, my year on it first, you know. That was my first maiden album, yeah. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I, I like the first album cover. It's when Eddie's more uh you know, his face is a lot thinner, he's much more punk rock. Yeah. I saw the I saw the um you know that was based on a photograph of a a, a head, a sort of a, a decaying head of a, a Japanese soldier. I did There's a photograph this. of this this head that had been placed, I think, on a tank or something in World War Two, and it's all the skins, all sort of. And he, uh, Derek Riggs, had just copied that and and turned it into that painting, and then, oh, wow, the band saw it and goes, "Oh, we'll sort of use that because you know we have this head thing as well." But it was it was when I saw that photograph. Um, it's in a book called Heavy. Where have I got it lying around? Uh, by Dan Franklin, um, a book about metal. Um, the, the, this, this photo of this dead Japanese guy's head that looks an awful lot like Eddie. Wow! Uh, it's kind, of, yeah, it's kind. Of, it is kind of shocking. Because he, he's very, he's very much a um, a creature of the imagination. Is Eddie? He's uh, you don't you don't think he has got this real sort of human backstory. You know, he's oh. just this 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 spirit that does anything it wants. Mm. It's it's a, it's a spirit of a prepubescent wee boy uh, who's just full of energy, and he wants to be a fighter pilot. So he's a fighter pilot, or he wants to do sword fighting, or he wants to be a Scottish clansman, or he, whatever he wants to be, he wants to be a, a bounty hunter. Yeah, he uh, or serial killer or whatever. He just he is that sort of thing. And you know, maiden concerts—they have this this great big build to the reveal of the Eddie at the end, the sort of the sort of giant Eddie. It's sort of like a uh, you know all these you know occultists, and they have their summonings. They try and summon something, you know. Uh, but with an Iron Maiden concert, it always works. 
that spirit of Eddie is always there. It always comes. It's a strange, strange thing. Yeah. It's definitely more than just a mascot. Oh, yeah. He, he has become an entity. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I remember uh, seventh grade when we were about 12 or 13, uh, how I met one of my uh, lifelong best friends. We were in homeroom, and uh, he just turned to me and said, do you know what your name would be in hieroglyphics? Because he had just bought Power Slave, and he just oh, became yeah, fascinated yeah. with the entire imagery yeah. and was yeah. going to the library and researching all this stuff. And he had seen me wearing an Iron Baking shirt. Uh-huh. Uh, we really hit it off. Yeah, that's a sleeve where there's a whole world in that sleeve, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So you've seen Maiden? Uh, many a times, yeah. I mean, I, unfortunately, I, I had that period where I thought, oh, I've grown out of this now. And like, you know, Nirvana happened and things and I sort of moved on. And it took me a while to sort of um, come back into the fold. But uh, yeah, I mean, I first saw them, I don't know if you know the Made in England video in I think 1988. I'm in that crowd. I'm at that gig. Excellent. Yeah. I would, I bought a Union Jack to hang on oh. my bedroom wall after <laughs> seeing that home video. Oh, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was how, well, part of my lifelong uh, Anglophilia. Yeah. And, and now, I don't know if you've seen them recently, but they're just um, trans... I mean, arena gigs are a certain thing and not many people can turn them into something truly special. I think Nick Cave can, but Iron Maiden, certainly on the, the last tour with the inflatable giant spitfires flying around and the, the whole just theatrics of it. It just was just extraordinary. Just extraordinary. I only saw him once, uh, 1990, 1990, I think, uh, no prayer for the dying tour. Yeah. Okay. I saw, I saw him a couple of times on that as well. But, uh, now that they still, they still have the three guitar players. Cause why not? You know? Yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, why not? Yeah. What's two about, you know, for three. Bruce's autobiography was fantastic. I don't know if you read that. I did read it. Yeah, it was good. I liked. I liked it a lot. I'm sort of. I know Adrian has got a book coming out around now, but it seems to be entirely about fishing, with a few, <laughs> a few bits of Iron Maiden stuff thrown in, but mainly it's about fishing. Are you not familiar with it? I think it's called Monsters of Rock and Rivers. Or something like that, or fish, or something. It's something like that. It's very fish heavy. I got to get him on the show. <laughs> he's he's to, he's he's totally gone on the fish thing. Wow, I did not know this. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I I'm not a great fan of fish, so. I'm, I'm... No, me neither. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I am a great maiden fan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, I thought of this earlier um, with all the connections. We mentioned Live and Let Die and the Avengers. What about the Persuaders? Oh, which was the Persuaders? Um, that was Roger Moore and Tony Curtis, like oh. millionaire playboys who would just yes. like gallivant around Europe and then occasionally a crime would pop up that they had to solve. It was it's fantastic. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That was a, I think my memories of that are very few, I have to say. It's been a long time since that's passed my mind. Um, yeah it was one of those glossy itv filmed in color and, and to be sold around the world sort of sort oh, of yeah. thing yeah because it, with all those early especially the bond films the notion that um 
they would go to like, I don't know, Jamaica or somewhere yeah. like that. To the audience, that was just mind blowing. You know, people didn't travel the world then, you know, the, didn't, there was no package holidays. People didn't go to fly to the sun or leave their own countries for holidays. So, so when Roger Moore was, you know, just traveling from country to country, it was just, people were just like, wow, that's just yeah. extraordinary. That's extraordinary. And now people do that all the time. If you look at the Mission Impossibles or the Bournes or the, the Bond films, they have to go to places that are essentially uh, shitholes. They have to go to places that you wouldn't go to because if you went to nice places, you've probably been there yourself. So they have to go somewhere dangerous uh, or um, crime riddled or, you know, some or a third world country where there's a, a dictator or something. And that anywhere you wouldn't actually choose to go, that's where they have to go now because yeah. that's, that's the titillation for you, for the viewer, for their travel. That's something we haven't seen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But for our supernatural Bond film, uh-huh. Maiden should do the theme too. Yes, I wonder if, if they've, they've probably already done <laughs> a Bond. Uh, as far as, as I know, no, no, I don't think they have. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on this one. Um, Maybe you could have Bruce in the film flying a plane. Oh, this sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah, you'd have a cover of Eddie in a tuxedo. Eddie with, should be the villain. Film. that's the supernatural side of it you know he's he's this undead thing this is gonna be like the blockbuster of you know 2022 if we start making it now (laughs) (laughs) Uh uh that's all my questions you got anything else you want to add anything else you're working on now or no not really i'm just sort of uh head down working away you know it's an odd year as, as if that's not an obvious <laughs> thing to say um and i'm just sort of using it to sort of work and and right away so next next autumn so not in that next autumn when is it next spring next spring uh this book uh william blake versus the world that will appear um and in october paperback of my future book future starts here and that's going to come out here in britain so i've got a few sort of things bubbling and and coming up but sadly no hg wells and spiders from mars play or or anything like that well actually i look forward to those Uh, let's talk again when the the big book comes out Uh, very very nice to talk to you very nice to talk to you john thanks for coming on the show my pleasure man bye all right i really enjoyed that hope you did too And I do hope we get this supernatural Bond film off the ground. I mean, that would be rad. Especially if Maiden did the soundtrack. You can find John at johnhiggs.com or at johnhiggs on Twitter. His tweets the other day, man, hit me to the fact that Paul McCartney and Youth from Killing Joke made three records together as the firemen. Woo! I can't recommend John's books highly enough. Read them ASAP. I'm very much looking forward to reading more, delving into Watling Street. I mean, even if it doesn't mention the exploited, you know? And the future starts here. Looks rad, too. In Southpaw news, there's the new Young Southpaw Part of an Hour episode, Master of Puppets, like I was saying at the beginning, and along with a whole bunch of other stuff up at youngsouthpaw.com. And I've been putting these interviews and other stuff up on the YouTube channel as well. 
please share, rate, subscribe, and all that. Much appreciated if you do. I'm also looking into doing more online shows, so look out for those. And if anyone wants Southpaw on the bill, please do get in touch. That's all for now. Thanks very much for listening. I'll see y'all next time. And remember, there is no I in optometry. Thank you.